you turn with me to the passage on which today's gospel lesson is based, it's Ephesians chapter 5. I'll be reading from verses 21 to 33. For those of you who are new, we've been looking at Ephesians since the beginning of January, and we've taken a pit stop over the course of the last several weeks, and we're kind of nearing the end of a series on marriage uh, as we look at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's, let's look at verses 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's a very, uh, it's generally one of those passages where pastors get in trouble. Uh, but you can't avoid. In any series on marriage, you can talk about a lot of things in marriage, and we've talked, about, we've talked about oneness. We've talked about friendship. We've talked about the commitment of marriage and the covenant. We've talked about the priority of marriage. You can't avoid talking about gender roles. You have to address it. Verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. Headship, submission, that's what we're going to talk about today. It means three things. One, we're talking about completion. Two, we're talking about authority. And lastly, we're talking about representation. Completion, authority, authority, and essentially what all this represents, what it points to. First, we're going to look at uh, completion. Paul says in verse 22, the wife submits to the husband, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. And when Paul says that, he's referring to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, if you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis, you learn that Eve was created out of Adam. Essentially, they're a part of each other. And that's important because in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it reads, In the image of God, in the image of God, he created him. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Man and female, he created them. In other words, this is what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to create man. I'm going to create him in my image. They're going to be a reflection of my nature, a reflection of my character. They're going to imitate me as sons, as daughters. They're going to imitate me. They're going to, they're going to live and think. They're going to have wisdom. They're going to have creativity. They're going to have a sense of righteousness. They're going to have a sense of justice. They're going to understand what it means to be holy, set apart for me, but 
I'm going to create them as male and female. And both of them together are going to reflect my being in a way that Adam by himself cannot do, that Eve by herself cannot do. They're going to complete each other to reflect my being. Both of them, as a result, are equal in dignity. Both of them, as a result, are equal in value. I value them equally. they, They have dignity equally. One is not weaker. One is not less. One is not less wise. One is not more sinful than the other. The text is saying that both of them are equal in reflecting God's image, but together, together, they will reflect God's image in ways that they cannot do alone. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, God, he, he has Adam naming the ad- animals. One by one, the animals get named. He brings uh, an animal to, to Adam, and Adam names him. And uh, the reason why he does that is why? To name something, to give something a name, is to have authority over that thing. God has Adam name each animal because he says, you are going to subdue the earth. You're going to rule over the earth. You are a vice king. If God is the king, he established man as a reflection of his own character as a vice king on earth to subdue the earth, to rule the earth. And so he names the animals one by one. But then Genesis chapter 2 says something very interesting. It says, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Adam is a king. Adam is a ruler. Adam can serve. Adam can work. Adam can rule. Adam can worship all by himself. And yet, he's incomplete. Now, up until that point, what what does God do? God's creating the earth. God's creating the universe. God's creating the world. He creates light. And he says, and it was good. He creates sky and water and land, and it was good. He creates vegetation, and it was good. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars, and it was good. He creates the living creatures in the sky and in the sea, and it was good. He creates the land animals, and it was good. He creates man, and then he looks at everything that he's created in the world, and he says it was very good. That word, it's the benediction, the good word, is very good. But then he looks at Adam. Adam's a prophet. Adam's a priest. Adam's a king. Adam's learning and hearing. Adam's walking with God. Adam is ruling. And he says, it is not good for Adam, for the man to be alone. It's not good. The first malediction in the Bible. Sin has not even entered into the world yet. Evil has not entered into the world yet. Man is in paradise. And yet God says, this is bad. This is bad. Adam is literally designed to be incomplete all by himself. Without a relationship with God, he's totally, cosmically incomplete. But as a reflection of his oneness with God, as a reflection of oneness, even God himself, Father, Son, Spirit, as a reflection of that oneness, Adam was designed to have a helper, an enabler. The actual Hebrew word is enabler. Adam was designed to have somebody who would be his strength. Now think about this. When you think helper, you think like somebody who's going to assist me. You're washing the dishes, you need a helper, they're going to dry the dishes. 
right? They're kind of like second fiddle. Psalm 54 says, God is my helper, the sustainer of my soul, the one who sustains me. It's the same word that's being used. Adam needed a helper, somebody who would help him sustain himself, somebody who would be, someone who would enable him, someone who would be his strength. And so Eve wasn't just created to be like an, a, a secretary or an assistant in that way, but to complete Adam. Adam was incomplete without Eve, to complete Adam. And when Adam encounters Eve, he breaks out. When he first sees Eve, he breaks out and he sings. It's the first poem in the entire Bible. He sings. And we're going to break this down because, because Paul refers to this passage. Paul is referring to that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, when he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What's the reason for that? In Genesis chapter 2, we see it. Adam sees Eve. Adam meets Eve. Adam encounters Eve for the first time. He says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The actual phrase is, this at last. In other words, I've been longing. I've been looking. I've been searching. And I didn't even know I wasn't complete. All my life I realized I've been searching. And this at last is bone of my bone. This person is a part of me. And I didn't even know I was incomplete. I didn't even know I was missing. This person is so different from me. And yet, I've been missing this person in my life. At last. Now I'm complete. All my life I've been working. All my life I've been resting with God. Totally sufficient in God in paradise, and now I meet you, and I realized that even in paradise, I've been incomplete. Knowing you helps me to know myself. Knowing you is knowing me. Looking at you, you are me. And the Bible says, we read this in the call to worship at the end in chapter 2 of Genesis, they were naked. They were unashamed. Adam meets Eve, and there's this comfort. Adam meets Eve, there's this ease, there's no shame. Adam is with God in paradise, uh, and, and there was no need to hide. There was already no shame. But now there's this unity that Adam experiences that he never experienced before and never experiences again because of our sin. And yet the point is, men and women, male and female, were designed to fit. They were designed to complement each other. In some ways, husbands, wives, your spouse, totally different from you. To the point where you're like, where does a person like this come from? Right? Like you're in wonder, you're curious, and you're mystified. It's part of the design. In some ways, the person is totally opposed, and yet you complete each other. By nature, male and female, man and woman, by nature, complementary. You say, but we're so different. Pastor, we are so different. Yes! In fact, God created you two to be complete opposites. Now, there's a lot of implications with that. I can talk about same-sex marriages. We can talk about a lot of things here, but I'm going to stay focused, and we're going to, talk about, we're going to say this. 
with your love, affirmation, nurturing, arguing, critiquing, confronting. You're doing all these things as, as spouses because you're opposites. You're going to confront. You're going to conflict. You're going to oppose. And all of that is there not as an end in itself. You walk into marriage and it's all about agenda. That's the end. The Bible calls us to look beyond that with a greater vision. We talked about this. If you've been a part of our church over the last couple of weeks, you'll learn that this great vision that you have of your spouse, of the radiant beauty, the holy and blameless person that they are created to be by God, the, the person that God is making them, making out of your spouse, that's the vision that you have. There is a source of conflict. There is the reason why you're arguing. There is the reason why you are opposites to draw that out of that person. Because, because you're opposites and because you are naked, unashamed in front of each other, there are things that you see that the other person doesn't readily see. There are things that you see that the person does not see about themselves. So on one hand, they're opposed to you. And yet, on the other hand, they're helping you. They're enabling you. They're completing you. One of my favorite classes in college, actually my favorite class in college, you know, I, was a, I majored uh, in two sciences. So go figure that a class I took in music theory on Beethoven, where we studied the elements of his music and uh, throughout the pre-romantic era, it was my favorite class in college. In music theory, you learn all about compliments. You learn all about compliments. Now, I'm not a musician, uh, but compliments are very important in music because there are themes that run, and then there are counter-themes that run, right? Almost like sine and cosine, right? Uh, and uh, these counter-themes and themes, if it's the right fit, if it fits, there's a complexity that you experience that you'll never be able to experience if you just had one theme. There's a beauty that you experience all at the same time that you never would have experienced if there was just one theme running through the piece. One of my favorite pieces, kind of an obscure piece, is Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. And uh, you, you, in that... In that peace, you have these complementary instruments. They're actually opposing each other because the whole piece was Beethoven's way of introducing the piano, which used to be in the background, to the foreground. That's the whole point of the piece. So you have this piano and you have the symphony, and they're going back and forth, and they're opposing each other. And yet in that opposition, they're conflicting and then slowly start to submit to one another. And they start to merge and you have one theme that's running, and then you have another theme that's running. But when they merge, you have a whole new theme. And it's beautiful. It's incredibly complex, and yet it's incredibly beautiful. If you have the wrong counter theme, what do you have in music? Dissonance. Right? It's disgusting. It sounds bad. If you have different instruments all competing for one sound or the same theme, what do you get? You get dissonance. If you're a trained ear, you don't even have to be a trained ear. You know it doesn't sound good. But when you have different instruments coming together, counter themes and themes running along with the right fit, there's the complexity. There's the beauty. In fact, the jazz movement is pretty much defined by themes and counter themes opposing and conflicting and yet giving birth to an incredibly new, complex theme and sound. 
When you have different opposed instruments that fit well with complex themes and counter themes, you get a fuller sound, a richer sound, an enhanced sound, a glorious sound. It transcends signs. You can try to break it down, but even with jazz, you know that it's very difficult to break down. It transcends science because now it's beauty. Now it's art. That's marriage. That's what marriage is intended to be. Don't be too discouraged if you fight. Don't be too discouraged if you fight a lot. I'm going to give you an example. My wife, uh, much more practical than me, my wife says to me, and I don't like telling personal stories you know, about my love in the front for a lot of reasons, but I'm going to tell you a few personal stories. My wife, she says to me, and she says, you know, sometimes you think you're so courageous, and yet I know you're doing this because you're afraid. It happens a lot. Essentially what she's saying is, you are a coward. And it's true. She says that. She says, you are forgetting the gospel. You are forgetting the vision that God has given. What's your immediate reaction? Yes, you are true and correct, and in my humility, I will... No, you don't say that. You fight. You get defensive, right? I'm not afraid. You know who you're talking to? I am a minister, you know? Uh, and she goes, okay, all right, you know, you know? But she knows, you know, because my wife is wise, she's smart. You stop, and you, you let that percolate a little bit, and, you know, the Holy Spirit and your conscience, it starts to work together, and what happens? You go back and you say, you're right. I, I'm acting in fear. What do I do? What do you see? I'm forgetting the gospel. Why didn't I know that? Why didn't I see that? Is it because, I mean, I'm a middle-aged, educated, experienced person. Why didn't I know that about myself? You're telling me that a person as complex and brilliant of a thinker, you know, as me, can sit there and not know when I'm afraid of something? Why didn't I know? It's because uh, you know, but you really don't know a lot of times in our lives, right? And so you need a counter that you are naked in front of who knows everything. You need somebody who is the opposite, with opposite emotions and opposite sensibility and opposite wisdom and, and men and women, they're designed, they were built separately, inside and out, to complete you. That's how it's designed. Completion. That's what this passage is saying. Now, the second part of this is that headship means authority. Headship means authority. The word head in the Greek is the word author. Right? Uh, the word authority, and uh, the, the root of that is the word author. The word author means what? It means that when you're the author of something, you are the one who started it. You are the originator. You are the creator. You are the source. So if you are the source, you have authority. It's why Adam, in a sense, has been placed, and he names Eve. God has placed him as an authority. Now, Women, you're going to have to kind of hang tight a little bit with me, right? We're going to go on a little bit of a ride here, right? But it's a beautiful thing. You're going to see this, okay? If you watch a movie, and you come out of that movie, and you want to interpret the movie, one critic will say, well, this is what I see in the movie. It's about this. And another critic says, you know, I've, I've seen many pieces by this author. I've seen many pieces by this director. This is what they, you see themes of this always running through their writings and their pieces. This is what I think. 
And then later on, you read uh, a piece, an interview with the actual writer and director. And they tell you, well, this is what I intended. This is what the movie's actually about. Instantly, what do you know? What they say trumps what anybody else has said prior and what anybody else will say after. Why? Why is that? Why do you just automatically just jump to that? Because they're the source. Because they're the author. They have authority. In verses 22 to 26, you see, wives submit to your husbands in everything. And then what? Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means several things. We're going to kind of walk through this. Hang tight with me, okay? First, wives submit to your husbands. Here's what it doesn't mean. One, it doesn't mean, wives, you have unquestioned, unconditional obedience to your husband. That's not what it means, okay? I know a lot of people have misunderstood this text, and historically, the church often misinterprets and twists this text. Lots of passages in Scripture will tell you. I can point you lots of passages where it teaches you never support any authority, any human authority, if it leads you to sin, if it leads you to disobey God's commands, right off the bat. So if your husband is hurting you, if your husband is forcing you to live in sin, in a sense, he is forfeiting, in some ways, his authority. The text is saying the wife must support the authority of a husband who is aligned with, submissive to. Remember, the verse 21, submit yourselves Submit yourself to one another out of reverence for, with Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. In other words, even the husband submits. Paul's saying even the wife submits. And then he says, wives, you submit here to your husband in a specific manner. So the text is saying you as a wife submit to the authority of your husband so long as he is supporting that which God upholds. Now, the second thing that the text is not saying is wives then always must defer to their husbands. That any decision they make, that the wives just must defer to it. In our cultural context here, when I look at the majority cultural context here, that is virtually natural. That is virtually instinctive in our patriarchal society. Let me ask you, I'm going to challenge you this. Then how are you going to complete your spouse as an opposite? Women, how are you going to complete your spouse if you're single, if you're looking to get married, if you're engaged, dating, or if you are married? How are you going to complete your spouse? Because completion means you're going to work at it. Completion means there's going to be conflict. Completion means that there is, sometimes there's going to be arguing, there's going to be pushback. That's what you're called to do. That's what you're supposed to do. That means that in any healthy marriage, decision-making requires dialogue. It requires pushback. It requires opposite perspectives, in a sense. Well, then, Donnie, what does it mean to submit? How do you submit? If there is an impasse, if there is uncertainty, if you're stuck, if in the dialogue, the counter-themes and themes, there is still dissonance. Verse 21, number one, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, what that means is you're not submitting because you are a lesser person. I've heard that from a lot of pastors. I've heard that. You're not submitting because you are a lesser person. 
you are choosing. It is a voluntary act of submission because what you're saying is, I'm not doing this because you are always so wise. I'm not doing this because you are always so uh, brilliant in your, in your logic or your reasoning. I'm not submitting even because I trust you so much. I'm trusting that Jesus is present and he is wise and he is able and he has brought us together. Today's world says virtually the opposite. Today's world, and it's a very, very recent phenomenon actually where we talk about the egalitarian nature of marriage. It's a very merit-based understanding of two people coming together. Today's world says that, and it goes against the grace-based nature of our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of the world, the way God designed the world. So it's merit-based. It's you have to earn. You have gifts, I have gifts. Because you have gifts and I have gifts, let's divvy up the responsibilities according to our gifts. When you look at it that way, there's no completion. You know, your completion is really just a, a very loose arrangement between two people who think they're, they're able or better than the other person. You know, slightly better at this or slightly better at that. Friends, think about it. You would never, I mean, I've been in marketing for a very long time. You would never into any negotiation like that. You would never enter into a business partnership that way. You would never do that. Why would you do that in a marriage? You would never do that in a friendship for that matter. Why would you do that in a marriage? There is power through meekness. Trusting God. God has brought you together. But that means that there's going to be conflict. There are themes and counter themes. Maybe even different agendas at times. But as you work it out, there's completion. That's what happens. But because there's submission at an impasse under tremendous uncertainty, when you are stuck, when there's such dissonance that it brings you to a place where you're stuck, you can't go forward, there's power through meekness, trusting God all the way through. And so you are choosing to trust your spouse. It's a wisdom. It's a wisdom that you would not have on your own. It's a wisdom that only God gives. I'm going to give you a couple examples. You know, before, number one, before, um, right before we planted Metro, uh, Angela and I were very, like, logical thinkers, you know, I mean, and so we come together and we saw the merits of a church. We saw a church like this. We saw the need we saw what God was doing during our exploratory time. But when it really came down to it, um, I'm a coward, and I went through just waves of fear. Uh, it was just a part of my journey getting to this place. And uh, when it came down to it, um, we knew, on one hand, that this could change lives, that God is calling us, could be calling us to change in a way that he will be changing lives, transforming lives forever bringing people who've been away from the church for a long time back to the church. But we also knew that it's going to take away a lot of our comfort. Our lives in many ways will never be our own in a, in a sense. And so there were waves of fear. And so it, there was a couple of critical moments where I turned to my wife and I said, so do we do this? Are we going to do this? And, uh, you know, we're going to move forward. And, and Angela responds as she always responds. Angela, again, very logical, very reasonable. When I say, hey, do we do this? She says, well, here are the merits. And she recounts the merits. So she says, on one hand, you have this. And on the other hand, and I know all those things. I'm asking for a yes or no. So I press her. I get it. But do we do it? 
And she turns to me and she says, you are the one that is called to make this decision. Don't put that on me. And later on, things go wrong and then you're going to blame me for, for getting us into this. <laughs> you, know? you are the pastor. Is this your call? I can affirm you. I can say that God has put you here. I can say all the things. You see the merits. You see the risks, but you see the merits. I get that you're stuck, but I trust you. Another time, a few years back, actually a very recent past, there was, there was a point in time where ministry was so hard and I was just consumed by darkness in my life. And I was so traumatized. I'm actually still recovering in many ways from that. Came this close. I don't think Metro will ever know how close I came to walking away. And there was one day in particular where I was uh, sitting in my desk and I was just browsing through uh, the web. I was looking at vacation sites. And, um, and Angela caught me doing that. And she says, you know, what are you doing? And I, and I said, well, I'm assuming that within the next week or so, I'm going to be stepping down. And I figured, I have a lot of time on my hands. Let's go on vacation. Let's go away, you know. And I thought what she would say, because Angela loves I thought she would say, you know, well, you know, I trust you, <laughs> you know. She says, no. She literally said that to me, like that. It's scary. She's all nice. No. <laughs> no. Says, you are not leaving. Don't you dare walk away from this calling. Don't you dare walk away from this just because you're tired and you're afraid. You are a coward. Don't you dare walk away. What's she doing? That's the other side of submission, you know. She's completing me, you see. She's gazing on the future glory, a glory that I did not see and could not see. She's gazing on a future radiance, uh, and she's completing me. Where, there is, where I lacked courage, and I lacked a lot of courage, she instilled courage. Where I lacked humility, and it was all pride, she was humble. And so in the first case, the first example where we're talking about planting metro, you see the submission is intentional. It was a choice. In the second case, she didn't defer. There wasn't unquestioned obedience. That's not what this is. In the second case, there was completion. The submission comes into play when there's completion. There is a theme and then a counter theme that actually completes. And in that role, in that submission, Right, even though it was firm. Now, we're both from the Northeast Atlantic. We were raised in public high schools. Um, you know, we both went to private schools. We both went to grad schools. This is not about, hey, you know, we're from a, a Midwestern style of Christianity and that's what we teach. This is not, hey, we're from the Deep South and a Deep Southern style of Christianity and that's what we're teaching. This is not a regional form of Christianity. This is not a cultural form of Christianity. Why do you do it? Paul says, as to the Lord. Why submit? As to the Lord. Meaning that you're not just submitting to your spouse. When you're submitting to your spouse and it's a choice, it's not because, you know, it's just what Christians do. It's just what our lifestyle demands. He says, I want you to submit to yourself, spouse, because out of reverence for Christ, 
as to the Lord. Not as, you're not submitting to your spouse as an end in itself with a greater purpose. There's a greater trust. You are trusting that that person is in your life to shape you. That person is in your life to challenge you, to challenge the things that you desire, your comforts, the things that you place your rest and your hope and your joys in. Is to complete you too. Thirdly, the text doesn't say, husbands, force your wives to respect you. The text says, husbands, love your wives. What Paul's saying is, don't act like the head because you deserve it. Don't act like the head because you earned it. Because you don't and you didn't. What Paul's saying is, and you, look, you see this in verses 25 and on, you are not entitled to headship unless you love your wives sacrificially. You have to gain the trust of your wife. It's a lifetime of trust received and trust attained, acquired. Because if you're not doing that, it's mainly because you're not putting her life, her advancement, her maturity and faith. You are to love your wives, to make her holy. If you're not putting her life, her advancement, her growth, her health, her maturity, in, her maturity and faith above even your own life and your desires, Verse 26, the purpose is what? To make her holy, cleansing her through the word. And verse 27, to present her as radiant. If you're not doing that, you are not living sacrificially in a way that she can trust you. Why can't, how can she trust you? How can she submit to you? Do you see that? It's a tremendous responsibility. In fact, there's more that's said here directed towards husband than you see towards wives. On the one hand, wives submit because they trust. God has brought you together, and, and so you, the wife submits by confronting you and by committing to you, trusting you. On the other hand, husbands, the text never says, rule your wife and make decisions on your own for yourself. I want you to just, you are the king. You are the king of this house. Make decisions that's gonna, that are going to fit your needs. The text never says that. The text never says, rule your wife. The text doesn't even say, lead your wife, in a sense, without first calling you to first love your wife. Love your wife, verse 28, as your own bodies. This model is very, very dangerous. If you twist any portion of that, just simply to meet your own needs, husbands, men. This text gets very, very dangerous, easily twisted. You can become abusive. You can become very oppressive in your relationship. You need to confront this. You need to confront this because it'll kill that model. Because the truth is, if you really get what's happening here, there is no room for oppression in this. There is no room for manipulation in this. If this model gets twisted, even a slight bit, what happens is it just boils down to who speaks louder, who's stronger, who's more manipulative to convince the other person that they're right, essentially. In a covenantal commitment, where the husband loves the wife sacrificially. That means it, that's not a symbolic thing. You know, the, Paul's not here talking about, in a metaphorical way, sacrifice for your wife just by marrying her. Like, that's the sacrifice. You know, that's not what Paul's, Paul's talking about. action. We've been talking about, all last week, we talked about love as a commitment. Love as a commitment, love as covenant. You are choosing and you are working at it and you are pushing and pressing to, to act in love. So when the husband, when Paul calls a husband to sacrifice 
He's talking about it with action. It's not just metaphorical. It's not symbolic. Really thinking for them. Sacrificing your wants, your desires. And the wife submitting to the headship of the husband. Trusting him. What happens is then, both are being challenged. Counter theme and theme are running as undercurrents of each other. And you will experience the deep beauty. The deep beauty of sacrificial love the way Jesus loves his church. That's the consonance. That's marital symphony. You get that? Verse 23, Jesus is the head of the church. Look at Jesus' perfect beauty. Look at his sacrificial love for the church. That means he's constantly loving. He's constantly praying for, interceding, constantly thinking for his church, constantly thinking for his bride. That's what he's doing. If you don't see Jesus doing that for you daily, regularly, you will never be decent to your spouse in marriage. You will never be decent to your spouse. So the third point here and the final point is it's about representation. Your marriage is not an end in and of itself. It points to something. It represents something. Our salvation is the result of Jesus perfectly enraptured and in love with us. So there are several things. When we say that, that means several things. If you look at husbands loving their wives as Jesus loves his church, wives submitting to their husbands as Christ is the head of the church, we're going to see several things. One, look at Jesus' vision for you. Jesus doesn't just have a crush on you. Jesus, what's a crush? A crush is when you are interested in somebody and all because all you see all the good things. When you, when you date a friend, when your friend starts to date somebody, right? When you date your friend. You should date your friends, by the way. Uh, when your friend starts to date somebody, somebody you don't like, what do you do? You go to them, you pull them aside, and you say, hey, this person's got this flaw. I, see, I really see a lot of things. I'm very, very concerned about this relationship. What does a friend say? But you don't know him like I do. You don't know her like I do. You see, I get that you see these flaws, right? But you know, I see their heart. I see their good sides. That's a very immature love because it's not complete. It's not full. It's not, you think it's a gracious love. It's not a gracious love. Why? Because the very nature, grace assumes that you see every flaw. Grace assumes that you see all their flaws and their sin. A mature love is committed. The, the person is saying, I'm willing to pay the price, but I see the whole truth. I see the whole truth. And that's Jesus looking at you. He sees every flaw. He sees every sin. He sees every undeserving quality, every blemish on the cross, every blemish, every sin, every undeserving quality of you covered in his blood. He's going to pay the price. He's committed to you. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I, right now, one with the Father, always one with the Father, from the beginning, on the cross, he says, I am forsaken. I am suffering the cosmic dissonance between the Father and myself. The Father has abandoned him. And he did it because of the vision that Jesus has for his bride, the church. That you would be made holy. That you would be blameless. That you would be covered in his righteousness that you be sanctified in his blood Jesus took on our sin and became sin 
Jesus gave up his purity so that we would be pure. Jesus gave up his righteousness so that we would be made righteous. Look at Jesus' vision for you. Number two, look at Jesus' passion for you. The Almighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Creator and Sustainer and the Governor of the universe has placed, has tied his victory and his triumph in you. Flawed, broken, weak. He's, I'm tying up my victory. I'm wrapping it all up in you. My glory is tied to you. I'm bound to you. Union. So man is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. That means that Jesus' love has gone beyond any just frill passion for you. His heart is set on you. He delights in you. And when he sees you, one of the prophets in the Old Testament says, he sings. Adam meets his wife and he sings. Jesus, looking at his bride, sings for you. Even on the cross, he was reciting Psalm 22. What are psalms? They're songs. You know what that means? That in his deepest suffering, in his deepest loneliness, in the great dissonance, the cosmic dissonance that he was experiencing with the Father, out of his submission to the Father, out of his trust in the Father, he's looking out at his bride and he's singing. You see that? Look at Jesus thinking for you in his deepest sufferings. Look at Jesus praying for you. Look at Jesus forgiving you. Look at Jesus loving you. Number three, look at Jesus completing you. Romans chapter 8 says, All things work together for the good of those who love God. What does that mean? Jesus is sustaining all things. Jesus holds the world, and he holds the world, history, time, the universe, every circumstance. You know what that means? Everything that you've ever been through. Every hurt, every pain, anything that's ever happened to you is actually for you. Now, I don't want to diminish any of the suffering that any of us have experienced in this room. But the way you know that is that it's because the gospel teaches that everything that happened to Jesus is for you. He is the head of this church. He is the head of the church. He's never detached from his body. The head is always thinking for the body. The head is always living for the body. And so the head has authority over the body, for the body, just like Jesus for his church. That means that Jesus didn't just die on the cross for righteousness. He didn't just die on the cross for justice. He didn't just die on the cross for holiness. He didn't just die on the cross for peace. He died on the cross because of his love. He's thinking for you, his bride. And lastly, that means you've got to look at Christ's authority. When you love somebody, when you really love somebody, parents, you know this when you look at your spouse or you look at your child, right? When you love somebody, you know your life is no longer going to be your own. It's an immature person who says, but I have my own desires to feed. What about me? Anybody who truly loves knows that they have surrendered and sacrificed that sacrifice, their control, and their lives. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves the church. 
and gave himself up for her. That means that your success is actually tied to her success. Her success, her health comes before yours. You are bound to her. You are tied to her. That's why your wife should factor into every decision. You should be making your decision with her. If you ever watch, uh, I believe it's in both King Kong movies. There's an earlier 1970s version of King Kong, and there's a later version that came out, I believe, in the, in the early 2000s. If you watch King Kong, you have this mighty King Kong climbing the Empire State Building, right? One of the most incredible cinematic scenes, right, uh, uh, in the history of cinema. And he finally falls. And uh, uh, when they look upon this fallen beast, they all know, those who were there knew that he did it because of his love for this frail, small woman. And so he's fallen dead. And it's that famous phrase, and lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty. And beauty stayed his hand. And right there, from that day forward, he was as one dead. Every decision, everything you do, husbands, your wife should factor into it. Everything. It begins with Christ. When you look at the most beautiful, most powerful, most perfect person that ever entered into your life, that's Jesus. Your love for Jesus, it results in what? Surrender. You're giving up control. All of life. You know what repentance is? All of life. Martin Luther says all of life is repentance. It means you're giving up control. He becomes your Lord. Then there's a completion. You see that? And Paul says in the same way, marriage gives you a picture and a reminder and a pointer to that surrender. Every time you conflict with your spouse and you are unable to submit, every time you conflict with your spouse and you are unable to love in a sacrificial way, it should remind you of our inability to love Christ and give up control of our lives. That's what it should be. If you can't surrender to the ultimate beauty, you will never be able to surrender to your spouse. Jesus gave up all wealth, all power, all control, everything for his bride. And he did it for you. He does it for his bride, for his church. And he's calling you to submit, to come under his authority. Don't just walk away saying, I want that kind of marriage. Don't just walk away saying, I want a marriage like that. I want a love like that. That marriage will not complete you. That marriage will not complete you unless you're first restored as a bride of Christ. Jesus must complete you first as the ultimate helper, the ultimate enabler, the ultimate head. Come under his headship. Come under his headship, his lordship, and make that union complete. Will you do that? Let's pray.